Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, who owns the internet and is it falling apart? If it was roads and highways, we'd be seeing chunks of masonry falling off. And have a lie down and tell me about your dreams. We went to the pet shop and they had a container of ferrets. We delve into the computer analysis that helps us understand what dreams are all about. But first, America is burning. Uncontrolled wildfires driven by high winds and unprecedented temperatures incinerated the town of Malden in Washington state on Tuesday and are now threatening more communities across Oregon and California. Fires are certainly not new to the region, but fire season is getting longer and more costly. Wildfires burn three months longer than they did in the 1970s. Wildfires are posing a growing threat to American homes and buildings as climate change exacerbate the conditions that foster these enormous burns and, and the demographics aren't helping either. Katrine Breyek is The Economist's environment editor. The cost of this rises in the billions every year, and that is actually just for fire suppression. The real bill is, in fact, much, much larger. And there we're looking at the cost of rebuilding homes, the devastation that follows these events that can last years, really. Katrine, when we speak of the fire season, it's as if it's a fact of nature, like winter. Is it or have we just become habituated to it, yet it's a consequence of global warming? Fire season is, in fact, a natural phenomenon in some parts of the world. California does have a natural fire season. Parts of Australia have a natural fire season. And in fact, many species of trees can't actually reproduce unless they are burnt. So it really is an essential part of many ecosystems. The problem is that humans are increasingly building in these environments where there is a natural fire season. Naturally, we try to stop fires burning, but in doing that, we actually sort of stymie this natural process and then just build up more and more and more fuel for when the fire does actually catch, it it just goes ballistic. And then, of course, on top of that, you have the impacts of climate change. Is that why the fires in America have become so much worse because of climate change? Yeah, so it really is a double effect. The impact of people moving further and further out into what has come to be dubbed the wildland urban interface. So this is that sort of intermediate zone where houses and infrastructure are reaching into the wild landscape. You get the sort of typical Northern Californian landscape of houses interspersed 
in the middle of really tall trees, dense shrubbery. So more and more development in that high risk zone is a problem. But on top of that, you do have the undeniable effects of climate change, which is extending the dry season. In California, you have a smaller and smaller snowpack that's decreasing the water availability. You're basically drying out the landscape and just creating an ideal tinderbox for wildfires. What does the science say about how to protect the buildings that are there? Counterintuitively, perhaps, it is actually possible to coexist with fire. At least that's what, what the fire experts are saying. It's it's not a case of people need to move out of these fire-prone regions. That would be completely unrealistic for, say, the Bay Area, for instance. But by studying how buildings burn, you can start to design buildings that are if not fireproof, at least fire safe. One thing that's emerged is the importance of what's known as fire brands, so flying embers. Most people believe that their house is going to catch fire when this flaming front comes sweeping through and you're going to be caught up in dense pack of flames. But actually, that's not true. Most fires catch fire ahead of the flaming front and, and sometimes, you know, kilometers ahead of the flaming front. And that's because these tiny little flying embers are cast ahead, blown ahead by the winds. And then they land either in dry vegetation around a house or they pelt the sides of a home. They also talk about houses burning from the inside out, and that's because these flying embers can get caught into tiny nooks and crannies. They might fly into a vent and get caught in a crawl space or in an attic. So how can we build better fireproofed homes? People need to stop building wooden houses in fire zones. You need to look at different materials, whether that's stucco, adobe. You also really need to address this problem of the flying embers. And that means stopping up all of the nooks and crannies. So you block the vents. You might even just remove vents. Very importantly, in the last few years, people have started to say that the zone from zero to five feet away from the foot of your house is really important. So this is the place where a lot of people will put bark mulch planted borders, for instance, where bark mulch is is just asking for trouble. You, you should be putting completely non-flammable materials at the base of your house so that if these flying embers do fall in that zone, they won't produce flames that are licking the base of your house. So it's sort of thinking very carefully about how fires burn homes and then basically doing everything you can to make that impossible. It's not just about designing fire-safe homes, it's also about designing fire-safe communities and defending the communities. You need water availability, that seems fairly obvious, but you don't actually need to locate a community in the centre of a moat in order to defend it. So agricultural lands can be really good for keeping the flames at bay. If you think of a vineyard, a vineyard is kind of a natural fire defence because the flames have to jump from one line of vine to the next line of vine. And as they carry on like this down the vineyard, they're losing, the fire is losing energy as it progresses. And so it's sort of eventually will peter out before it gets to the structure at the end. A lot of communities in California will have golf courses. And traditionally, the thing that you do is you put the houses around the golf course. But then you're basically putting your burnable structures around a non-burnable piece of landscape. So instead, put the houses in the center of the golf course and the fire will struggle to get across that and reach the houses in the middle. Now, if the technology exists to fireproof homes, 
Why are buildings still burning? First and foremost, I think there's a cultural shift that needs to happen. I mentioned this sort of insanity of building wood houses in a fire-prone zone. It's a difficult thing to shift. There's also cultural resistance, by the way, um, on behalf of, say, the construction industry. There's this perception that building fire-safe homes is going to be more expensive than building traditional homes. That's actually been debunked. It seems like I can't turn on the news without seeing something about wildfires somewhere. Globally, are we seeing more frequent and damaging wildfires? Yeah, I think that's undeniable. And it's interesting as somebody who's covered climate change for so many years that we talk so fluidly about rising temperatures, heat waves, sea level rise. And in a sense, it's really only in the last few years that the conversation has turned to what environmentalists often used as a metaphor, you know, that the planet is on fire, and which in some places feels actually very real these days. And fires are becoming more frequent and damaging. Remarkably, we're now seeing the Arctic and large swaths of Siberia going up in flames. And that, in a sense, is sort of a pure signal of climate change, because we're not talking there about people moving, you know, large densities of population. What we're talking about really is just the earth getting hotter, providing more fuel for the flames, and fire just goes where there is fuel to burn. Katrine Breck, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And for more on the impact that climate change is having on our world, you really absolutely must subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Next, it's easy to think of the Internet as an abstract thing. It's virtual. It's in cyberspace. But of course, the Internet is a tangible thing a vast network of cables and computer servers and checkout tills all around the world. They are all built, financed, owned and operated, and occasionally regulated, by someone. But understanding how consolidation and control that exists offline also appears online presents the Internet in a new light. The myth of a democratizing and inherently empowering force starts to fade. I think a lot of the principles of the people who were building the internet and then building services on it were genuinely egalitarian and looking to really sort of make data and make networks equal. James Ball is a journalist and author of The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us. But it's still a network and networks create network effects. And if people have heard of these, they've probably heard of them on social media. And obviously, if you're looking to join a new social network and one's got 50 of your friends on and one's got two or three, you'll probably join the first one. And that means more and more people will flow to the winner. And suddenly you get, even from a fair start, one dominant network. 
These effects run all across the internet, often in more subtle ways, and so mean that this sort of quite equal decentralized system actually creates monopolies and actually concentrates power. You make a case for the evilness of the quote-unquote system, and you break it down into three neat areas. The architecture, the money, and the usage. You call it the melee. Explain to me what these three categories are and why there's problems at each layer. The architecture is about the bits of the internet that we never really think about. The protocols and how those rules are decided for how data flows or for how the naming system on the internet works or just the physical infrastructure of it. Now, because no one really wants one government or the UN or someone like that to be in charge of these, the result is kind of that no one is really in charge of the whole thing and overseeing it. And so you've got the internet that grew up out of sort of four universities being connected, turning into critical infrastructure, and now kind of creaking at the seams. You know, if it was roads and highways, we'd be seeing chunks of masonry falling off. Give me some evidence that the domain name system and the IP address space is falling apart. It's usually in sort of quite isolated instance, but one of the systems for how sort of traffic flows across the internet is called BGP. And it was literally drawn on the back of three napkins in the 1980s by two engineers who knew, hey, this isn't a good long-term solution, but it should work for a year or two. One of them gave an interview a couple of years ago where he's like, well, looks like no one's coming up with a long-term solution then. And so there's quite huge security vulnerabilities from it because it was just never designed to work on a network as important as the internet. Okay, let's go to the second category, this the area of money and finance. That, I think, is a little bit more obvious of how it's distorting sort of the, the virtues of the internet. But explain to me what you see as the central problem there. I think there's a few problems, but the one I would pick is that in the real world, you can make a medium-sized business and do quite well, and it can work and be interesting. For internet companies, because of the way venture capital works and gets its returns, but more or less, the choice facing you is either going, I'm going to be bigger than McDonald's in five years, or you're going to be nothing. And so we end up with everyone incentivized to do huge growth which tends to mean they follow business models that leave us vulnerable to privacy, that leave us sort of vulnerable to all sorts of other problems of the internet. Now, the third category, the usage, that too, we've seen lots of problems. What's the one that you would focus on as being among the worst? The one that I would pick out here is actually our governments more than our companies. And it's that they never really decided to curb their own activities on the internet. The US had such a dominant position on the internet that it decided to exploit it as a surveillance and a soft power advantage. That's a totally understandable decision, but it's now facing a world where Russia is an incredibly sophisticated sort of actor on the internet and China is still more advanced yet. And so the US's sort of dominance of surveillance and of information tools and, you know, even kinetic cyber attacks is fading and it's missed a chance when it was the superpower to set some limits and set some rules. We have nothing as a basic tenet of how governments even should act online. And I think that's left a lot of us vulnerable. What does smart regulation look like for the internet? I tend to mistrust anyone who thinks they've got one fix that will solve more than one problem. That tends to be a bit utopian. You know, we hear break up big tech a lot. I don't think we should be looking at breaking up tech, but rather actually thinking of data as a public good and as a sort of right 
and not just having privacy protections, but things like your right to control your data, maybe even a right to monetize it, but certainly to transfer it so we can make things interoperable. And that would open up the internet and kill some of the market power. And we could also look at how you would create alternative models to VC so that companies that want to do that train and try and become huge can, but we create space for small and medium businesses on the internet, which would surely help us. Do you think that these ideas will really fix things? Because it seems to me that the problems you've identified of economies of scale and network effects are so baked into the system that they'll always be there, no matter what the regulation. A saying that I've always quite liked is, you know, New York will be a great city if they ever finish building it. I think we will always have to keep building and moving against these. And yes, they will then adapt. And we will always be fighting the scale issue and the network effect issue. But we can keep moving and make it work better. James Ball, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And finally, could researchers make sense of our dreams? Mum and I were at a shop. We went to the pet shop and they had a container of ferrets with a big snake in there. The snake started chasing me and Mum. We split up. I was floating on a little cloud thing. We drove somewhere full of scary dogs. We went on a roof. A good dog explained that mum was bad. Your mum is bad. Or, or something. Izzy is an anonymous woman who, between the ages of 12 and 25, documented around 4,000 of her own dreams. Dylan Barry writes about science for The Economist. He's been looking into new research from Roma Trey University in Cambridge. The work has been analyzing dreams like Izzy's. The study was an analysis of a collection of thousands and thousands of written dream descriptions of people's dreams. How did they analyze these dreams and what were they trying to find out? The intention of the study was to test the so-called continuity hypothesis of dreams and posits that dreams, our inner dreamscapes, in some sense reflect the goings-on in our everyday lives. They found a way to automate the analysis of dream reports written down by dreamers using an artificial intelligence software called a past tree. And this allowed them to look at, instead of sort of dozens of dream reports at a time, to look at them in their thousands. And where does the data come from? Their source of supply for the dreams uh, was in fact the largest publicly accessible collection of dream reports in the world. It's called the Dream Bank, and it's a repository of about 24,000 reports from a variety of dreamers around the world. Uh, most of them are from America, and in addition to a dream's contents, each report includes a little bit of biographical information, like the age and sex of a dreamer, and maybe a little bit of their life story. And what did they find out? They found several interesting results. Firstly, when they looked at sex differences, they found that men, who are the more violent sex in the waking world, and there's a lot of evidence and psychological support to that, um, they found that men also had uh, more violent dreams than women did. Uh, on the question of ageing, the team found the dreams of individuals uh, going through adolescence change in ways that, that make a lot of sense if you think about the, the expected ways in which uh, adolescence experience of life changes through that period. Moody teenagers in their early adolescence, um, sort of a lot of anxiety, uh, and then sort of increasing levels of sort of sexual interaction and things like that. And that was reflected in people's dreams. The team, again, uh, looked at whether life-changing personal experiences are reflected in the ways in which people dream. 
and they found that there was quite a lot of evidence of, to support that. In particular, they looked at Vietnam War veterans and found that they had substantially more violent dreams um, than any of the other people uh, within their sample. Finally, and perhaps this is the most interesting result, they found that violence peaked in the 1960s, um, which you could argue was a, was a particularly exceptionally violent decade in the United States. You had sort of the assassination of a president. You also had the assassination of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. All of this, of course, occurred on the backdrop of the Vietnam War. What they found from there was that the 1960s uh, reflected a, a, the, the, the peak in terms of dreams about violence and aggression, uh, and that it's declined very steadily ever since. And from the 1980s, that's very neatly uh, reflected the decline in violent crime and general violence experienced by people in the U.S. Does the research answer the question, what are dreams actually for? No, the research doesn't, but that wasn't what it was trying to prove. The research has lent really important and really substantial empirical support to the continuity hypothesis, um, which means that much better than we did before, we're now pretty confident that dreams do in some sense reflect our sort of daily lived experience. The interesting question then is why that is. So there are a range of different theories for why we dream in the way that we do and why we dream at all. Dreams might be a consequence of the way in which our brains encode short-term memories, so memories from the, the last day or the very recent past, into long-term memories, in which case you would imagine that there would be some kind of relationship between what was going on in your mind and what was going on in your daily life. Perhaps the most interesting theory is referred to as the nocturnal therapist hypothesis, um, which theorizes that dreams actually, as, a, as opposed to being sort of some kind of unnecessary or inadvertent consequence of all kinds of other neurological effects, are in fact a very important adaptive mechanism that we evolve over time to better prepare us for dealing with a complicated world. At night, when we're sort of cuddled up and feeling cosy, and hopefully not in too much danger, our minds sort of take that time to simulate all kinds of experiences that we might experience in daily life, so that we're much better equipped to deal with them than we otherwise would be. So the nocturnal therapist for some are their dreams, and for others, it's a Lagavulin 16. Dylan Barry, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Hopefully we didn't send you to sleep, but if we did, we hope you had nice dreams. Thank you for listening. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.